You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that I just got off 10 hours of flying. And well, if you can't hear it, my voice is a little dry. But I'm going to do this episode anyway because it is going to be awesome. And it's what I've been wanting to do for quite a while to share something new with you guys. But that's not really the cool fact of the day. I'm just explaining why I sound a little different. The real cool fact of the day is that only 21% of people in the U.S. get the recommended seven to eight hours of sleep each night. Not that you really need to get that much sleep necessarily, but in contrast, people in France sleep on average of 8.83 hours per day, which is the longest country for sleep in the developed world. Now, there are studies that show if you sleep more than eight hours a night, you're more likely to die from all-cause mortality. So France, come on, guys. Sleep a little bit less, maybe lay off the wine a little bit, and you'll be okay. However, it turns out some people can survive on much less. About 1% to 3% of the population are short sleepers who need less than 6 hours a night. In the animal kingdom, a brown bat needs almost 20 hours a day. And a giraffe, which is obviously one of my spirit animals, only needs 1.9 hours of sleep a day. And this stuff came uh, from Michael Bruce, the guy who wrote The Power of When and is uh, also a former guest on Bulletproof Radio. But it's pretty neat to just look at the diversity of sleep that's going out there. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. And today's episode, as you might have guessed, has something to do with giraffes. Okay, maybe not. Has something to do with sleep. Because the guy who's coming out today wants you to sleep better, and he's done insane amounts of research and even developed technology based on sound, light, temperature, and relaxation to help you do just that. He's known as Dr. Snooze, although his actual name is Dan Gartenberg. He's co-founder and CEO of Sonic Sleep and an adjunct assistant professor at Penn State University with a PhD in cognitive psychology and an expertise in sleep, AI, and preventative health. And I've known Dan for several years. He's been granted multiple patents and developed a whole bunch of sleep tech. And you might have read about him in national magazines or seen him on the Today Show. And... 
Today, we're going to talk about sonic sleep and the technology behind getting better sleep. If you read Game Changers, you noticed that I mentioned sonic sleep as one of the sleep hacks that I recommend. Dan, welcome to the show. Dave, great to be here. Now, when I said that I wrote about sonic sleep in Game Changers, your eyes rolled. Am I remembering <laughs> right that I put it in my manuscript, but it didn't make it all the way through my final edits? Did something happen oh. there? All is forgiven. Oh, no worries. We're, right. do, we're getting into it now. So in, in Game Changers, you know, the book that's a concentration of all the many different podcasts, I wrote about the importance of sleep because so many guests who've been on the show who aren't sleep experts said it mattered a lot. And I said, all right, here's my latest sleep hacks you don't know about. When you're in a hotel, you can run sonic sleep and it gets you more, uh, basically more REM sleep or more deep sleep and it blocks out bad sounds. And full disclosure, I invested in sonic sleep uh, a while ago. And so I've been following this thing. All right, when's the time to share this? And you're waiting for the new app. So we're going to talk a little bit about the app, but this is just more about the sleep stuff that I haven't talked about before on Bulletproof Radio. We all know maybe if it's darker, that's going to be better, uh, stuff like that. But we're going to go a little bit deeper. So Dan, I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm stoked that you finally had the time to come on as a busy startup entrepreneur. I'm so excited to do this. All right. I wrote a post oh, geez, eight years ago about this thing called the Zio. And the Zio was the first EEG sleep monitor. It was this dumb looking headband. Uh, and Ben, the guy who started it, is still a friend. And um, I would, uh, I'd i wear this thing and Lana, my wife would just roll her eyes and be like, oh my God, you're doing it again. <laughs> and I got sleep data that led me to write the hacks about raw honey or brain octane or collagen before sleep and taping over LEDs that are now like very common. Like every sleep hack talks about that stuff. But I, I was like measuring this way back in the day. And I said, here's how you change your sleep score. Because everyone says, oh, if you sleep eight hours, you get more, you know, you, you get more points. I'm like, I didn't want to sleep eight hours. I only had six <laughs> hours. I just wanted, you know, four hours of deep sleep and two hours of REM sleep. Not that I've ever gotten that good. So was I right or was I wrong in terms of looking at efficiency versus quantity? And you're the pro and tell me when I'm wrong. I want to hear it. <laughs> so, I mean, I think at the end of the day, it's quantity and quality. So you're telling me I'm wrong, Dan. No, I think yeah, you're right. <laughs> and it's complicated. There you um, go. That's the real answer. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I actually was partly inspired by the Z, the Z score and the Z, I was, they called it the ZQ score um, way back, you know, eight years ago. Um, I think your, your thing, if I remember correct, correctly, was the Zio Force Multiplier. Yeah. Um, kind of a cool name um, for, you know, actually changing that value that you get when you wake up for how well you slept based on the sleep that you actually need. Or the sleep that you just had. Like, if I only had five hours, tell me I did a good job or a bad job. I know I should have had more. But like, that's my life sometimes. Yeah. So, I mean, quantity is a big part, but, you know, as you've talked about before, quality is such an important thing. And one thing that makes this question really complicated is that, you know, while the uh, National Academy of Sleep Medicine says that people need at least seven hours on a regular basis um, and as much as nine. If they're sick. This, I'm sorry. I just had to say if, that. <laughs> no, that's exactly what I'm saying. Okay. If, if I, I'm, I'm going oh, there. Sorry, if I you're stole your sick, I mean, you need more sleep. Um, if you're going through a lot of like, uh, you know, uh, personal challenges, like this yeah. isn't just a sleep need based on an individual. This is actually intra-individual. 
um, and actually deal with this sometimes when I'm like really having a stressful day at work. Um, I know that maybe I need to get a little extra sleep that night. And that also being said, if I can align my circadian rhythm, and I think you've really delved deeply into this, you can get better quality of sleep so that you can get by on less. Um, and there's many other ways to try to, you know, hack your sleep quality um, to actually be able to get by on less sleep. All right. So if it's possible to get by on less sleep, tell me what you think. Two nights ago, uh, thank you for huge amounts of uh, wind that screwed up my flight. So it took hours longer than planned. I only slept three and a half hours. Okay, that's considered a crap night's sleep. But according to my aura ring, I got exactly one hour of REM sleep and 42 minutes of deep sleep in three and a half hours. How would I do? <laughs> I mean, so, so that would be um, a healthy amount of sleep. I mean, that's more deep sleep for your age group um, than if you had slept the whole night. See, um, see, so this is that's what I'm talking about, right? But, so there's the Dave Asprey sleep need, and then there's the general population sleep need. And, you know, not everyone is doing all the things that you're doing to like optimize. Um, so I'm just trying to speak to multiple. Um, and this is why sleep is so complicated, because it's a very personalized thing. Um, and I think why a lot of these companies like Zio, um, Hello IS, um, you know, various companies in the sleep hardware space have failed is because the science of sleep is, it's hard to give generic feedback. Because for example, you know, if you were someone with insomnia, I might give almost the exact opposite feedback as someone that's just trying to optimize like maybe, you know, like you're trying to do. Oh yeah. And I think finally we're at a place with the technology where these hardware companies, i.e. Apple, Fitbit, are finally opening up their technology to third-party developers that are, is enabling you know, people like me and my research lab at Penn State um, to do the hard science that's involved to actually delivering people these personalized sleep improvement solutions. All right, Dan, I've got to tell you this. You may actually save more human lives than almost anyone else alive. And here's my math. Okay, if your tech and you and there's a bunch of other sleep researchers, you know, working on on the similar problem and from all sorts of different angles, if you were to take the however many billion people there are, what about six, seven billion floating around, something like that. Um, so let's just save seven billion people two hours of sleep a night, so that they wake up, they have less health problems than they do with their crappy sleep now, and we all get two hours of more like serving our communities, being parents, uh, reading. Uh, playing Xbox, it doesn't matter. Whatever brings you joy, as long as you're getting that quality sleep. If you look at two hours times six billion people, you know how many human lifetimes that is? I'm serious. <laughs> Trust me, I'm, this is what has inspired me in this for 10 years, it, that very thought process. It, it's like a Nobel Prize. Um, I, I mean, seriously, it's that important. Yeah. Okay. And I think the Nobel Prize a year or two ago was uh, for some research on circadian rhythms. Absolutely was, yeah. All right. Well, maybe uh, when you just realize, okay, here's the personalized algorithms required basic monitoring, do these 10 things and you'll get more deep sleep than most people get in a full night in three and a half hours. By the way, that probably wasn't enough time for my glymphatic system to wash my brain toxins. And if I did that every night, uh, I would uh, probably get Alzheimer's disease or something bad would happen over time. So unquestionably, 
that was a bad practice. It's just, I only had three and a half hours. That was my life that day. But you know, I made the most of it. And that's, that's the, the real perspective here. Yeah, might as well get the most out of the sleep you're getting, right? Yep, and th- yep. this this question of like, uh, you just brought up Alzheimer's, you know, this is actually one of the big focuses that we're taking with this research, because there's more and more evidence. Well, sleep is related to basically every chronic health illness, but especially, you know, cancer, diabetes, hypertension, uh, stroke, but there's especially recent evidence relating it to Alzheimer's disease, and slow wave sleep in particular um, having to do with um, cleaning out beta amyloid plaques, basically, is a simple way of putting it. Um, and so that, that's kind of the focus of my research is on regenerative slow wave sleep or, or deep sleep um, and how that relates to both cognitive functioning and recently an angle that we're taking some of the grants that we have with the National Institute of Aging is to actually use sleep as a way to mitigate conversion to Alzheimer's disease. Um, which is expected to triple in the next, uh, you know, 20 years. So in my new book on uh, anti-aging that isn't out yet, uh, but for all of you listening, I don't know if I've talked about it before. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm in the late stages. I just finished the first draft of a book that's been, uh, in my head for at least five years. And like, this is the stuff I'm actually doing to live to at least 180 or die trying. <laughs> and <laughs> Uh, it, it looks like Alzheimer's is one of the big four things that's probably going to take you out unless you do something about it. And it comes from food, it comes from environment, it comes from toxins, and it comes from sleep, uh, which is why uh, I've had a, a variety of sleep experts on for a long time and why I decided I wanted to get behind Dan's work because it's it's pretty heavy-duty stuff. Now, tell me about sleep age, since we just hit on Alzheimer's, which is considered a disease of aging instead of a disease of inflammation. And sleep age, like, do you know your sleep age? What is that? So, you know, this is something that we've tried to try to distill. Um, the cool thing that inspired me about the ZQ score is that it was a value that represented, you know, what you did during the day or over the night um, that you could latch on to to make sense of how you slept. Then again, you know, what does it actually mean when I have a ZQ score of 90? You know, you got into what that means a little bit, but it's pretty opaque. Just to be really clear, Zio, unless you're like a super fan and you buy one on eBay, Zio went out of business because they were too early. Uh, so we're talking about the first major sleep tech out here that used EEG for you, but you can do similar types of things with an aura ring and you can even use uh, the algorithms uh, that you've got. Uh, Dan, you're actually taking data from the Aura Ring and then applying additional sleep research to that. That's exactly okay. right. So, We're trying so, to, yeah. So keep keep going. I, I just want I realized if someone's listening trying to buy a Zio right now, they'd be pissed. Uh, so don't worry about buying a Zio. You're going to want an Aura Ring <laughs> if you like what we're talking about here. Uh, but continue on your path. Yeah, I mean, just the headset form factor is one of those things that it, it sometimes does more harm than good. I think for most people and. Yeah, if if you like uh, the other things you do in bed, I can tell you there's nothing sexier than a big old headset with a couple wires coming off it. Um, maybe if you're into like Borg sex or something. Uh, but yeah, um, the sleep partner might not be too happy about yeah, if, about that Borg sex. <laughs> uh, That's hilarious. Good thing my wife likes Star Trek. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, Philips has a dream headset, so there are EEG headsets you can get now. I've, I've got one of those. They're just bigger and just. They don't match your Victoria's Secret outfit. So uh, it, it, in my mind, it's got to be sort of low stress and it's got to provide really clean data. 
Exactly. And I actually published a paper in ubiqu- personal and ubiquitous computing in grad school all about, you know, how do we get this data non-invasively? Um, and I love the ring for that. For that, The aura ring is a great form factor and the battery is great. We, we also develop our algorithm on Apple Watch. Oh, cool. Um, and we've shown that the sensor of that is they're basically the sensors are basically just as accurate um, between Aura and the Apple Watch. Um, is it actually Sonic Sleep itself or is it just some other way of working with what you're doing? No. Yeah. So Sonic Sleep, um, it, it, we're about to we have our app right now on uh, iOS and Android. And in about a month, we're rolling it out on uh, Apple Watch. Oh, beautiful. And then we're trying. Yeah. And then we're trying to get all the other wearables. My whole thing is like. I like a lot of the wearables, and we're just trying to integrate with the best ones. And the idea there is you can have university-grade, super detailed sleep analysis that goes along with you know the wellness score and the recovery score and all the other good stuff that comes with each of those different devices. And and the the future that I predicted, actually in a in a blue book that I wrote for investors about ten years ago, I'm like look, huh. there will be a marketplace for ideas. And if you like Dan Gartenberg's sleep professor stuff and you want him to look at your data and tell you what to do, then okay, great. And if you like, you know, Dave Asprey's biohacker stuff and you want me to look at your data and tell you what to do, great. And it just becomes a marketplace of ideas. And like, maybe I'll try both and see which one works better. And gee, Dan kicked Dave's ass because he's actually a professor of sleep and Dave's a hacker. <laughs> like, okay, th- that that's all good, but this needs to happen. And you're one of the, the, the current examples of this really happening instead of kind of the first wave of this that was maybe too early that came out of Quantified Self a while back. Yeah. And I remember, you know, back in 20, 2011, I think it was in one of the, those first quantified self conferences. I have the poster we from that about, hanging downstairs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I have, I still have, I still have that poster too. It's the blue one yeah. with the little uh, circle. It's a cool poster. Yeah, right? totally. That was a great conference. And I think you were talking about HRV even back then. Yeah. In fact, I, I think I put HRV in the, in the sphere of biohacking before then it was just a weird meditation thing or a, a hospital grade thing. And, you know, we all thought then, I don't know, that the, these new devices were going to change healthcare. Um, you know, it, yeah, at that conference, I remember in particular, it, it felt very exciting. Yeah. Um, we were right. That, we were all just too eager in terms of the timeline. Yeah, it was, you know, we're, I guess we're a little presumptuous and maybe a little naive, but I think now is actually finally the time. Yeah. But you know, back to, we, we kind of went on a circuitous route there. To sleep age, um, right. But back to sleep age, you know, we've kind of conceptualized the ZQ score as an age that maps on to what, for example, a 20-year-old would be getting. Um, so, for example, you know, deep sleep is something that generally decreases with age. So, you know, a 20-year-old usually spends about 20% of the night in deep sleep. And then, you know, if you look at the population stats, by the time you're 80, um, it goes down to 7.5%. Um, so we measure various aspects of sleep quality, map it onto the population statistics, and they actually tell you where you're lining up compared to, you know, other people in the United States. I'm to the point now in my mid-40s, if I don't get at least an hour and a half of deep and an hour and a half of REM, uh, I kind of consider that a sleep fail. And there are nights when I get you know, two hours of one or the other, and, and quite often two of each, even though I'm sleeping six or six and a half hours. Uh, and this was not happening for me even two years ago. 
so you know a lot of different things have worked to make it happen. But I, I don't call it sleep age because I don't have your algorithmic purity. Uh, but I, I do realize I'm sleeping like a 20-year-old, which kind of makes me feel good. If you're getting an hour and a half of deep sleep and REM a night, that is very good. Like almost better than a 20-year-old. Especially in less than eight hours. Like it's unbelievable. But I do all of the stuff in my books. And I, I think the stem cells, the the whole body stem cell makeover, uh, I, just, I just did an episode with Marcella about that. I think that getting stem cells in my brain really did give me a younger brain because my sleep quality shifted. Yeah, you were saying that um, I, I was listening to that podcast, actually, that you think you actually shifted uh, your circadian rhythm a little bit, too. Yeah, that's really inconvenient. Uh, I I woke up this morning at 6.30. It's it's still kind of dark at 6.30. It's horrible. <laughs> I mean, like, I stay up late and I write my books, and I, I'm losing my, my writing time between 11 and, and 2 is the sweet spot for really creativity for me. And now I'm like, I guess I could go to bed at 10.30, which is, in, it's been an impossibility for probably 40 years of my life to do that. And now it's like, yeah, I could go to sleep. And then I actually sleep really well. And yeah, if I go to sleep by 11.30, I do get at least an extra 20 minutes of deep sleep from doing that. And it's pissing me Interesting. off. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think what you're hitting on here um, is is a topic that I find fascinating you know, based on your circadian rhythm, there's probably a better time of the day to do different activities. Oh, yeah. Um, and that's something we're working towards um, in, our, in some of our algorithm work is like, um, and this fluctuates if, you know, you've talked about it in some of your books with the different types of animals for different types of sleepers. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's Michael Bruce, actually. Those aren't my books. That's The Power of When. Oh, okay. I quoted him earlier. Oh, so, yeah, right, right. Yeah, right. but... That work, it's totally real. Like there's a good time of day for sex. There's a good time of day for board meetings. And it, it's a big problem if, you know, your wife's time of day for sex is early morning and your <laughs> time of day for sex is 10 at night. You know, like, well, maybe we have to meet in the middle somewhere and it's time for, you know, that, that lunch meeting. Uh, but well, that, that's an interesting thing is what if you could say the best time that's convenient for the relationship? Well, he, he does that in his book. He explains <laughs> oh, it. It really? was mind blowing stuff because you're like, oh, and if you want to ask for a raise, maybe you shouldn't do it when your boss is completely like a curmudgeon because they had to come into work at 8 a.m. and they're not a morning person. Like, maybe let's do a little bit later. Right. Like it, it, if you're a salesperson, oh, this matters so much. Uh, I, I'm super stoked on it. But tell me, tell me what you've learned. Like, what are you, what are you learning in the lab about this? Because Michael did it yeah. as a clinician. You're doing it as a university researcher. You're going to get different results. Yeah. So let me just tell you kind of the way that I think about this with you know time of day and what sleep is actually doing. So the th the theory I subscribe to, and a lot of people in the research do as well. For one of the main reasons, there's many reasons, but one of the main reasons why we sleep is something called the synaptic homeostasis hypothesis. And so Giulio Tononi um, kind of coined this theory, and it's basically that over the course of the day, the activation of your neurons um, gradually increases. And I think that part of why you have more creativity towards the nighttime um, is because you have an overall higher higher neural activation. You're just kind of your your neurons are kind of fi um, firing at a higher uh, level. Basically, you can think of it like that. And the main function of sleep, according to this theory, is that during deep sleep, you downregulate all those relevant connections that you made during the day, um, such that the relevant things to your survival rise to the top. So, you know, it used to be like, you know, don't go to that part of the forest because the lions are over there. Now it's like, you know, what did so-and-so say about me at, at the office or something like that? And then 
that happens in deep sleep, you downregulate, and then in REM, um, you replay all the relevant things to your survival and then integrate that into your personality um, and your long-term memory, basically. That is pretty epic to understand. And what do I do with that? Even just sleep age. Okay, so someone figures, I have an old sleep age, I have a young sleep age, or they look at the whole data set you just had there. Uh, what do you do with it? So this is the main thing that has also, you know, been at the front of our minds is like all these devices, like, you know, Fitbit's like, oh, you got so-and-so deep sleep. What do you do with that information? Like, there's nothing that's that actionable about that. Um, and so we're not just trying to track, but we're actually trying to enhance. Um, and I think that's really where the field ought to go. Um, so by more accurately measuring sleep, um, based on your sleep stage, there's ways of actually enhancing your, for example, deep sleep in real time while you're sleeping through sound or temperature stimulation. And that's something that I've been using your app to do, uh, which is, yes, so, which is kind of cool. Yes. So there's, there's two components of sound that we can think about here. Um, a really low hanging fruit way to improve your sleep quality is to block out noise pollution. Yeah. So this is something that, you know, and it's, it's actually a socioeconomic issue too. Oh, yeah. where there's some research, recent research on this that's really kind of depressing a little bit. Um, but basically, you know, urban environments that are louder and sometimes poorer, um, the, the people in those environments often get worse sleep. And part of the reason for that is you, and this was something that was very surprising to me when I was doing this research, sounds wake up your brain throughout the night all the time without conscious awareness of it, of, of this happening. Um, so when people come into our laboratory environment, you know, we hook them up to the best wearables. We connect, connect them to polysomnography and we work with, um, you know, this fabulous professor at Penn State. His name's Orfeo Buxton to conduct these trials. And then, you know, we have the, P the EEG data giving us truth while we're looking at that data, we have um, a postdoc, Margot uh, Shade, who actually, her specialty is the understanding of how sleep impacts pain perception. And that's another whole thing we can talk about. But she'll look at the brain waves and then systematically administer sounds to people. And she'll literally play hundreds of these sounds to people throughout the night, louder than how I'm speaking to you right now. And people have absolutely no idea that the sounds were played, yet it's disrupting their sleep, basically. So step one is mitigate that impact with what we call is an acoustic cushion. So we basically measure the sound in the room and then adaptively ramp up the sound in order to mitigate the impact of noise pollution. So that's step one. For me in hotels, I've really noticed a difference from just doing that with sonic sleep uh, because at home, the only noise pollution I had last night, I live on a small organic farm. A woodpecker lands on our chimney and they like to peck <laughs> on the chimney because it resonates. So they make a lot of noise to attract a mate. And that's why I woke up at 6.30 this morning. Uh, I'm like, if, I just wish that woodpecker would find a mate and stop doing that. Uh, but, you know, okay, that's not <laughs> normal in hotels. It's elevators, it's people in the hallway, and it's just all the machinery in hotels that I, I find I get worse sleep just because of that. And when I turn on... Uh, the acoustic cushion stuff just on the phone next to my bed in airplane mode, uh, I do sleep better. And there might be another process that comes to mind for why that also might be. 
is, you know, there's a really interesting effect in the sleep literature called the uh, first night effect. And basically, whenever some someone goes to like a new sleep environment, almost always they naturally have a little, wor- you know, worse sleep quality. It's because your fight or flight response system is naturally a little bit elevated when you're in like a new environment. And kind of what we're part of what we're doing with sound is that we're building this association. But by the way, it's ironic. We have a siren in the background while we're talking, talk about noise pollution. Anyway, keep going. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of such a, um, I'm, I'm a little bit more, I'll, I'll self-inflict on my biohacking, I think a little bit more than you. And I actually recently just moved to a very noisy uh, apartment in New York City to try to demonstrate that I could actually resolve well, this problem. With, without $20 million, <laughs> you're not living in New York City in a quiet apartment. Sorry, like it's just noisy everywhere. Yes. Um, so, you know, I've actually tried to hack this in my own my own environment. Is it working? Um, so I, I have a kind of crazy setup. Um, so I have like surround sound speakers um, connected around like my window and then also by my bed. Um, and so kind of the whole house has this like sound cushion are, to it. Are you sleeping by yourself, I'm assuming? Yeah. Um, yeah. So my sleep I, hacking I recently, takes a hit when I sleep with Lana. Okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so so I, 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 I'm uh, recently uh, single, so I, I can really dive into some of this yeah. stuff. It's, a, um, it's actually a gift because you sleep way better when you have that flexibility. And the bed partner is a really other inter... Like, so I do sleep consultations with people too. And that was another thing that I was surprised by is pets and the bedroom partner are oftentimes major contributors yeah. to poor sleep quality. And I have an article called Split Blankets, Not Beds, all about trying to mitigate that relationship. Oh, man, I love it. Uh, I'll link to that on Twitter or something. Um, Lana and I switched about four years ago to Split Blankets. Um, yeah. And that makes a big difference. And plus, I like way firmer than she does. And sleep surface, I'm sure, is a variable. So I oftentimes do like the paleo style sleeping where I'm sleeping on a one inch hard cell mattress. Otherwise, you know, I'm on a really nice bed. Um, but if we're sharing the bed and we don't have separate blankets, she'll wake me up every single night. And then, you know, you look at this, you're married for like a long time, decades and decades, and you just get 10% less mm. quality sleep for decades. You know, you might get Alzheimer's from that. That seems kind of crappy because it's not that expensive to buy two blankets. Exactly. And, you know, this is actually kind of an American thing almost to have one blanket. Like if you go to other cultures, I think in Netherlands, for example, it's much more socially acceptable to, uh, you know, not only have separate blankets, but sometimes even separate beds. Something like 43% of Americans in a recent big survey said they would love to sleep separately, but they kind of felt guilty about it. And the state that wanted that the most was Texas. I don't know why, but that was a cool fact of the day, like 200 episodes ago. Yeah, that's, in, I mean, the, the global statistics or like the statewide statistics on sleep are kind of interesting. Like, for example, Colorado, I think is the best, is the state that sleeps the best. It's all the guns? You could imagine why that might be. It's all the guns. It's not. <laughs> I, have, I have no idea why. I just, I grew up in New Mexico. We're like right south from there. So, <laughs> uh huh. Well, I think the guns might not help with the fight or flight. Well, response. that was, that was my joke. <laughs> it's, it's like, you know, you could go either way in that argument. <laughs> so, but, um, so we, we kind of diverted again, but with this, with the sounds, um, this is the really kind of sexy thing in the literature that brought me back to this topic. So I was actually making sleep algorithms for like your iPhone back in 2010. Um, You know, the standard 
you know, sleep with the phone in bed with you kind of thing to measure your sleep. Oh, yeah. I had your app back in 2010. It was called, no way. Sleep really? to peak, right? Oh, there was sleep to peak. And then there's also one called proactive sleep. Uh, okay. Sleep to peak is still at the reaction time aspect of um, sleep to peak is really cool for measuring your circadian rhythms. I think you were interested in that. Yeah, that was how we first met. I was like, yeah. oh, this is a cool app. And no one's ever heard of this guy. I got to I gotta meet him. <laughs> so, I mean, th- that goes back like seven, eight years. I don't know how long I've known you, but. I've uh, had it for, that's, I made that with a, um, a neuroscientist from Canada, um, Mark Therian. And um, we've actually validated that that task is just as sensitive to circadian rhythms and um, your sleep need than something called the psychomotor vigilance task. Um, which was Those are your PhD by, thesis, right? Yeah, that's what I got. Yeah. That's what I focused yeah. on for my PhD. And we actually made artificial intelligence models that simulated performance on those tasks um, with stuff with like micro lapses in the basal ganglia and stuff like this. So basically, if you don't get enough sleep, you are not good at paying attention and noticing stuff. And, yeah. And you, you proved it beyond belief. But you also, because so we talked a lot about your acoustic cushion stuff. But you got almost a million bucks from the National Institutes of Health a couple of years ago and from the NSF to improve sleep detection and increase deep sleep. And I want to know, given that we talked about sound, light, and temperature uh, variables, and these are big things from Headstrong, my book, but these are what control your mitochondria as well. But was that part of that grant? Did you, did you spend that million dollars figuring out what light, sound, and temp do, or was that other stuff? Yeah. So this is, um, you know, basically what happened was at a certain point with the sleep detection, I realized that you couldn't accurately detect sleep with just motion alone. Um, And I actually gave up on trying to do this for like two years. And then when the Apple Watch came out, I knew that that was the time. Um, And so that's when we applied for all these grants. And it was based also on this really sort of sexy finding in the literature that you can actually prime different brain states with sound. So first and foremost, what our lab is focused on is how to use sound to prime deep sleep. So also when I was in grad school, um, this kind of famous professor with like 30,000 citations to his work was one of my grad advisors. His name's Roger Parasurman. And he was a pioneer in something I think you're very interested in, Dave, which is transcranial direct current stimulation. Oh, yeah. Basically, there's things like, uh, you know, headsets that you can wear, like Halo Neuroscience that does some of these things. Do you you mean like this headset? Oh, there you go. (laughs) Yeah, so we were actually zapping people's brains with low levels of electricity in grad school. And they would let us do it to undergrads because it really doesn't have a high, uh, it it sounds a little, you know, sci-fi and out there, but... Basically, the Air Force is really interested in some of this research to try to make super soldiers. I think that's where a lot of the grant funding came from. Um, and w- there was a lot of evidence to show that you can improve uh, you know, mental perform- performance with this. At the end of the day, the brain's connections are just a set of ele- electrical circuits, right? Yep. And what they found is that they could get this similar effect with not just electricity, but also through acoustic sim- stimulation, because the auditory cortex basically processes that information, converts it into electricity, and you could actually prime these brain states without zapping people, but actually with sound. And so that's the main purpose of our NIH grants is if people get less deep sleep, 
can we actually use sound played at just the right time? And this is the hard part, the right volume in order to get the brain to entrain to it without pushing the person into an arousal. Um, and so we understand the science behind that basically better than everyone else, I, I think. And we're the first lab to show that we can actually get this deep sleep stimulation effect on something as you know easy to wear as an Apple Watch or an Aura Ring. So like there's other devices out there that already do this on a headset form factor. Like you mentioned the Philips and there's another one, Dream. But we're, we can act, we're the first ones to show that we can do it with just measuring heart rate and motion on, you know, Fitbit or Apple Watch Aura, which, you know, we think is pretty innovative. And we show we can increase slow wave sleep and also next day cognitive performance in a paper that uh, we just uh, submitted to uh, the Journal of Sleep. Okay, this is groundbreaking stuff. Okay, going back 10 years, you know, I'm sleeping with this incredibly sexy headset on. And now you're basically saying with the microphone on a common phone, you can get this. So there's a microphone that gets it to some degree. And then if you have an Apple Watch or a Ring Um, Fitbit. You'd have the heart rate from the Ring. You really need the heart rate to nail the effect. There's some benefits still with just the phone by your bedside. And this whole like sleep with your phone thing is something I left way in the past. I do not, I'm not a proponent of that at all. Of sleeping with it? Like a lot of people sleep with their phone in bed with them. Um, but if it's on airplane mode and it's near your bed to collect sound, that seems okay or no? No, yeah, that's fine. Okay, that's what I do. I think that this this is something that I've personally um, come to terms with recently is my phone addiction. And I think that this is one of the main reasons why we're, our generation is you know, having some sleep issues, especially with sleep quality. Um, it's a major thing. Ariana Huffington, uh, she is, uh, she's all about like, leave it outside your room or you'll die and is a very big sleep proponent. And I'm, I'm always torn the data for me that says you did a good job, but my phone is exceptionally dim. I have a color filter turned on and I don't look at the phone. So for me, it's working. And then I get progressive wake up alarms, which are also really nice where, you know, it wakes you up slowly at the top of a sleep cycle. That seems pretty worth it, but you're right. If you're addicted to your phone, get the addictive stuff away. So so this is why it's so interesting to me is like, it's very, like, I don't like giving generic feedback sometimes because I think it's very individualistic. Like, frankly, most people sleep with their phone by their bedside. So first and foremost, we try to measure your sleep using that phone by bedside form factor and give you meaningful feedback. And also, this is a big thing that I think almost always helps people wake up very gradually. That's that the right saved way my life. Up. It changed everything. Yes. And so we try to do that because we, since we understand how sound impacts your arousability and this also like sleep spindles and there's some cool science on a lot of this stuff. When you want if you want to get deep into some of that, I'd be happy to do so. But so we actually start a sound to wake you up gradually. It's almost imperceptible. And then it ramps up over a 10 minute period in yeah, Sonic. I, I use it. it. It's, I feel so much better all day. Oh, you do? Yeah. Okay, and the cool. difference, like try having a four-year-old run in screaming and like your whole day is wrecked. I, I mean, seriously, that's, that's a big thing for how I perform the way I do is how I wake up. So yeah, the, that, that's beautiful. And I love that it's built in. And part of this is also is to 
there's a thing in sleep science called the cortisol awakening response. Are you, are you familiar with this? I explain it for listeners. I am. Yeah. Um, so basically you actually want a spike in cortisol when you wake up in the morning. Like it's healthy. Yeah. It's important. It's very healthy. And I think one of the reasons why older people often sleep worse is their circadian rhythm kind of flattens out. Um, and also if you have, um, stress throughout the day, like chronic stress, you actually respond by this, um, this cortisol awakening response decreasing. But by the way, if I'm jet lagged, I'll take five milligrams of bioidentical cortisol the second I wake up to induce that response. Oh, interesting. When, uh, uh, when I need it. And I'm telling you, if you don't want to get sick when you travel, here I am with a super, you know, scratchy voice. Cause I just had a lot of dry air, but, um, it's completely changed things. It, it's an old school, like 1950s hack for jet lag, uh, wow. but you you need that, and and you also need an acid spike in the morning. So this wake up and drink, you know, some sort of alkaline water. It's BS. But lemon juice or lime juice is great because it actually provides acid, and eventually it's metabolized to be alkaline later in the day. Huh. But you do get the acid spike in the morning. So get some cortisol, get some acid. Those things are supposed to be bad, not when you wake up. But you don't want to slam it on, which is what happens when the two-year-old or the you know, fire engine honking or something wakes you up. A startle thing is you dump all the cortisol. And if you get a normal cortisol ramp that starts right before you wake up, and I think with your app, that 10-minute slow wake-up allows cortisol to come on slowly. Is that accurate? Is that happening? Um, I mean, I, ha- I haven't run that study yet. So oh, come on, man. Say that, get but- to it. <laughs> but um, I mean, it's just definitely better Part of the other reason why I'm 100% sure that the gradual wake up is the right move also is that when you did have poor sleep quality, um, which can happen sometimes, you'll get that extra couple minutes of sleep, which I know is going to be is regenerative. Uh, my buddy Manish Sethi uh, started Pavlock, which and, is, yeah. and I, I made a very tiny investment in Pavlock because I couldn't not do it because it, it was funny. Um, but he has this wristband that it works really well for breaking or forming new habits, especially stopping smoking. And it runs a little electric current that shocks you. So our bodies are so averse to negative stimulus that he's like, well, let's use that every time you smoke, you actually push a button and it shocks you. And your body's like, I, I just don't want cigarettes anymore. I don't know why. But he has this thing about get out of bed right away, jump out of bed in the morning. Uh, and so you can set it up hmm. to shock you out of bed and train yourself to get that really uh, basically sharp cortisol spike. Uh, at least I'm assuming that's what it does. But I don't know that I would want that. I, I really value that 10-minute slow wake-up where you can like finish your dream and remember it and all that. Um, any thoughts on pros or cons versus <laughs> just natural or, well, training yourself to hop out of bed? Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, there's healthy stress and there's unhealthy stress, right? Uh, I don't think you necessarily want to stress the body in a way that's like causing you a lot of discomfort per se. It's only a little. It's, it's not like, you know, you're you're twitching for hours. It's like a little... Like a rubber no, band snapping. I'm fascinating, but I mean, I've as a biohacker, I've definitely looked into the the Pavlock. I was actually looking at their patent the other day uh, for some reason. It, it it is an interesting thing, and this also sort of brings me into a topic that is a little early, but I can talk about it a little bit. Is this finding in the sleep literature that through a similar kind of associative process, you could potentially prime your subconscious mind to re- to basically have memories for targeted things that you want to control um, through the process of sleep. 
And this this new research called um, targeted memory reactivation. Have, have you looked into this at all? No. So there's these cool studies. Um, it's still a little early, and it's not 100% sure that it's, um, a, you know, there's some evidence for this. I'm not going to say it's 100% yet, and we're trying to explore it. But if you do a, sti- a task during the day, such as, you know, trying to remember all 50 states or any kind of, you know, memory task while you're smelling something, for example, um, and then you replay that smell while someone is in REM sleep, since it, it ha- it's a similar kind of thing as what the Pavlock is trying to do a little bit with the, you know, Pavlovian response. Basically, the smell primes when you got the right answers for the task, for example, mm-hmm. and you re-encode that information more so, and then you do better in the task the next day um, with the cue. That is super cool. So we need a little smell generator in our bedrooms. <laughs> but you can also do it with sound. So, th- so that's something that we okay. don't have yet, but we're exploring. Now, um, I, I'm, I'm really interested in that. So maybe you play that sound when you're doing homework or learning a language. And I, there's, there's probably all kinds of cool stuff. One of the techniques that I've used uh, when I do certain types of neurofeedback uh, where you're getting yourself into these very advanced meditative states, like the 40 years of Zen style stuff, recording the sound of the neurofeedback session and then playing that back before bed to cue those same mental states, especially when I'm doing very deep states work. Uh, I can't say that I have data that it works, but it feels good. So maybe that's part of the same thing. No, and I mean, this stuff with um, with alpha and like really understanding alpha is something that is very fascinating. I think that's the brain state that you're looking at when you're doing this. Um, oh, no. At 40 Years of Zen, we're looking at well, the new research on Zen meditation is all about gamma, oh, how it mixes with alpha. And there's even some delta and some theta, depending on what areas of the brain. So, uh, But alpha, for the reset process we do there, is important. But it's it, it goes deeper than alpha. Okay, uh, interesting. But, uh, I don't want to go that deep on that stuff now because it's less sleep-based. You've got sound, I think, pretty much nailed. And this heart rate stuff. But the work you're doing also has light and temperature. Let's talk about your recommendations around light for improving sleep, because that's a big part of Headstrong, big part of what I do. Yeah. I mean, so I think you nailed it with the red light at night. You know, it just oh, yeah, makes I, I sense. One of my portfolio companies uh, that I actually I, I started, the True Dark company with the glasses is, uh, uh, yeah, we're into that. Yeah. I mean, it just makes sense. Um, and there's recent research that there's actually... Um, these like basal ganglia cells in your eyes that are particularly sensitive to red light. Yeah. Um, and it actually not, they used to think that the red light makes it so light doesn't um, activate like the melatonin, Yeah. but they're actually showing that the red light actually has like a, um, it actually, you know, makes you tireder. And they, and they think oh, yeah. that that has to do with like the the, the explanation from a theoretical perspective, which is usually try, how I try to understand things, is that when you, a sunset that we were exposed to for thousands and, you know, tens of thousands of years actually primes this response in us to fall asleep. And it just so happens that sunset is red. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so it kind of makes sense. Um, and they've done these studies in like mice and stuff. It's, it's you know, they have to like dissect the eyes and whatnot. It- it doesn't. It doesn't just make sense. I, I, it's. I'm laughing that you said that because 
Um, there's a, a patent for, for True Dark, uh, and my name's on it, which is why I really dug into this stuff. It turns out the angle of the light and the color coming into the eye matters. So we just launched last week something called the, the True Dark Sunsets. And what it what we did is we used the layer of, of uh, filters, which blocks hmm. all of the colors that are bad at the top of your vision where the light comes in, like in the middle of the day. But we have less of that filtering at the bottom of it so you can still look down and see what's going around. So there, it, it's literally like a sunset. It's dark, at least your brain thinks awesome. it's dark up, and lighter at the bottom so you can still get stuff done, and they still block all the melatonin and all. And But the idea is you can see a little bit better and people can still see your eyes. And uh, those huh. definitely- Oh, that's fascinating. Plus they look a little bit less like someone from X-Men, you know, their aviator style. But it's- I, I want the Cyclops- uh, I know I kind of like that too, <laughs> uh, but it's it's funny you just, you said sunset. I'm like yes, exactly right uh, because it sends a signal through the basal the basal ganglia, and I I find that to be fascinating that it may not be just the color of the light but the angle that the light comes into the eye as an important variable. Hmm, I didn't know that um, intricacy of it. Interesting. Um, I th- I think there is a lot to be said for light, and you know one of my ambitions here is you know, to try to create these, we call them like sleep habitats, but like theoretically you have an ideal light exposure that entrenches your circadian rhythm. And we're actually trying to work with cognitive behavioral therapists and make a software um, to try to add some of these light interventions to improve, you know, something, I'm not a medical doctor and this is still far out, but Theoretically, you can improve therapy with some of these light exposure and deep sleep simulation interventions. Um, so light kind of s- seems simple. You know, you want red light at night um, and you want blue light in the morning, basically, and you want to get at least 30 minutes of sunlight before 12 noon. But there's nuances in this. And, you know, I didn't even know about the angle thing, but I, I know a lot about the color spectrum. Um And so theoretically, based on your unique circadian rhythm, there's an optimum color in your environment. And we're trying to integrate with various devices like LifeX bulbs and Philips Hue to try to make this this aspect of the technology. Okay, That's, that's super cool. But basically, red light's a big thing, avoiding blue light. Okay. One of the things that I think is fascinating is you don't you didn't just study uh, psychology and the cognitive side of things, but you also looked at AI as part of your research. And you talk about sonic sleep AI. And what is the role of artificial intelligence in making sleep more regenerative in the way you're looking at it? Yes. I mean, this is what gets into all the personalized feedback that we're providing. So, you know, when we know people's sleep quality and when they went to bed and when they woke up, we can start giving people personalized suggestions. And the way that I like to look at it is there is always, there's one thing that anyone can do that's maybe a relatively easy thing that they can do to improve their sleep quality. Um, And that's, you know, different for different people. You know, if you want to optimize, maybe it's um, having a more strict bedtime or maybe taking a power nap. If you have, you know, insomnia, It could be, you know, the cognitive behavioral therapy things. And so what we're trying to do is detect uniquely what's going on with the person with these wearables and then create this sort of, um, you know, AI assistant on top that gives you that relevant feedback. So when you wake up in the morning, you don't say, oh, my device said I got X, you know, um, X amount of sleep. 
you you get that, which you know can be is definitely useful. But it also says, look, here's what you can do t- tonight to improve your sleep quality the next day. That's cool. And I've got one more question for you, Dan. I used to ask people you know, the question. I know you listen to the show. The you know the the question that formed the basis of Game Changers, and I feel like with a sample size of almost 600 people now, we understand the smarter, faster, happier thing. And for people listening, if you haven't read Game Changers, seriously, it's like 500 hours of podcast boiled down to the most important stuff. Read it. So I'm not asking that question anymore. The new question is more of an anti-aging question. And it comes Mm -hmm. down to how long do you want to live? (laughs) I mean, so my thing is, I want to, I don't want to live in a encumbered state. Basically. Nobody does, except um, if you ask people who are in <laughs> encumbered states, if they want to die, the vast majority of them say not yet. So that is true. There's very interesting research on quadriplegic people related to that very question. I mean, I'm happy with 120. Uh, my grandpa lived to 102 and he's distilled some of the secrets to longevity to me, which Funny, believe it or not, was eat cheese, chocolate, and uh, wine, which <laughs> is kind of a little anecdote. But um, you know, if I was had my wits about me, and you know, the, towards the end of his life, he suffered from uh, dementia, um, and that's partly what inspired me in this space. You know, I wouldn't want to be in that situation. But if I could be 120 and still have my wits about me, I would be more than happy. All right. I love it. 120. What if you had your wits about you entirely? Not 121? <laughs> I guess the more the better. I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm a little bit... Uh, <laughs> I guess there's a darker side to me that's like, I think after a while, I might just be done with all of this. <laughs> well, it, but I, I say my number is at least 180. The real answer is I would like to die at a time and by a method of my choosing. <laughs> Interesting. If I'm done, I'm done. No problem. No harm, no foul. But until then, like I'd like to feel really good and you know do a lot of good work and you know give back and you know discover things. I mean, that's the thing. Like to die in a prolonged state and having that burden on your family. Hold on, hold on. Like my... Once you're born, you're dying in a prolonged state. That that is the human condition right well, now. I guess until, we're always dying. until we fix it. That's the human condition. Good point. But to be able to do it without putting a burden, a large burden on your family. Yeah. Um, or on society, right? Or society. Yeah. But, but let's just assume that that picture of, of, of being old, I know people who are in their 90s who are dating people decades younger than them who are moving around and functional. Uh, Eric Kandel, who's been on the show, Nobel Prize winner, he's 94. And he has a lab hmm. in New York City looking at uh, neuroplasticity. And he's still working and loves his life. I'm like, okay, if that's what it's like, does your, does your math change? I guess I could go 150. Ah, there we go. All right. We we got you up. All right. Now, now you're at least in the the minor leagues. I'm just kidding. Uh, But it's, it's interesting because all of us have this preconceived notion that being old means being a burden. And in my experience, I have several friends, uh, seventies, eighties, nineties, and they're some of my most valued friendships talk about wisdom, right? So if, when you're older, you have wisdom and all the experience and knowledge, and you've seen things that younger people haven't seen, and you're comfortable and you're happy and you're giving back, and you're not, 
you know, you're not a burden. You're actually the village elder. Like that, we need more of that. We need a lot more of that. That is interesting. With your whole, you know, live to one eighty thing. If you're creating this society of wisdom, you could see that it, that would have a huge positive effect. It is exceptionally difficult to be an asshole for 180 years. It, <laughs> you have to evolve. And I know, because I used to be a really big jerk when I was young. I didn't even know what I was doing. I mean, my, I had brain inflammation. I, I was a total jerk. Um, and I like to think I've mellowed that out a little bit. Uh, and I know by the time I'm older than this, I, I'll probably have done some more pattern recognition on myself and on the world, and it'll just make me better at improving mm. myself and better at helping the people who want my help. And like, great. So I want the world to start thinking of, wow, you're 90, not you're helpless, but mm. tell me what it was like. I asked my grandmother this. Tell me what it was like when you were measuring neutrinos from the first reactor ever because hmm. she was a nuclear hmm. engineer and she said yeah i remember that and she like this is hmm. amazing and so i want more of that and plus dan if we're going to live that long you're probably not going to be putting microplastic in the ocean you know we're, we're going to solve those problems because like i can't mess up the sandbox because i'm going to be here for a long time so we have to be better stewards of the world yeah I, actually i never thought about the when you say you're going to live to 180 years old it actually makes you think more long-term and make probably better decisions in the shorter term too. Even if it's not something that you're actually going to maybe do, and I would love to see you do it. Dave. Well, that means you have to do it but too if you want to see it. See, that's that's the hook. <laughs> All right, 180. All right, that's man. It. It's, a, it's a bet. Me. We'll race. Okay. Cool. I got some time on I got some time on you. Beautiful. So that means we'll that's see. a big advantage because it's getting better every year in terms of what we can do about it. All right. If you guys like today's episode, including that dark ending about death, well, check out sonicsleepcoach.com, which is uh, Dan's website. Uh, I It's an app that I do use and an app that I appreciate. And I'm really looking forward to hearing what you guys think if you decide to check it out. Because adding that acoustic cushion is one of the things when I slept that three and a half hours, I guarantee you there's sonic sleep going on because... Uh, otherwise, in a hotel room with all the other garbage going on that same day, I don't know how I would have slept as well as I did without doing everything in my power to sleep well. And I took Bulletproof Sleep Mode. I wore uh, the new Sunset Glasses from True Dark. And uh, man, I, I mean, I did breathing exercises. I, I did everything I could think of. But certainly, a sonic sleep is a part of uh, what allowed me to achieve that, which is frankly an unusual result even for me, but I was pretty stoked on it. Have a wonderful day. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.